0: Our field is not very old. As a profession, it's not all that old. There's nothing to say that that next parent or that next student or whatever isn't gonna come up with the next awesome, amazing, game-changing thing. Uh, and, And I think people just need to have permission to think and permission to be creative with it.
1: from the outreach department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. This is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. Our second summer special brings you another conference presentation. During Texas Focus 2016, we had the honor of hosting Mickey D'Amelio, formerly of Florida State University. He shared specifically on the topic of recreation and leisure and why it's important for children who are blind and visually impaired. With an extensive background in orientation and mobility, Mickey hits on many topics pertaining to the expanded core curriculum and how Rec and Leisure can be so beneficial for our kids.
0: For the most part, many of our students can't just be thrown directly into a sport and expect that they're going to be um, immediately successful. Many of the students that we work with don't have a lot of the prerequisite skills that are required to access a sport, and a lot of times the other students that they're with, they have a lot of those skills already. They've been learning them incidentally throughout their lives. But many of our students aren't aren't in that same situation. So, you know, in first grade, if they're starting to work on uh, dodgeball or foursquare or any of those kinds of sports they may not have um, uh, the, the throwing ability, or the catching ability, or even just the turn-taking ability that, that uh, is involved with some of those activities. So, so just tossing them into that and expecting them to be successful is, is how children end up feeling like failures, how the teachers um, feel like they're not doing their jobs correctly. It just isn't a good recipe for anybody. It's important to remember that development happens along a timeline. Um, it rarely works to attempt to skip steps in development throwing a child into a sport where the prerequisite skills are not in place is a recipe for frustration and failure. And the thing is when when anybody, any human starts having rep, uh, repeated frustrations, they don't wanna keep playing those games anymore. And so, and we see those kids when they're older, they, they don't wanna engage in anything. You try to ask them to participate and they're just completely uninterested. And you can't really blame them. They've spent their whole lives uh, feeling unsuccessful. And a lot of time that's because people put them inappropriately in a situation they weren't quite ready for yet other barriers to physical activity for our students is the the uh, grief and adjustment process and, and that that's both on the children and and the adults sometimes especially uh, in, in my experience kids uh, that are adolescent middle school that that age um, they're having a lot of adjustment to deal with if, if their vision is uh, just recently coming on or, or or even just new stages in life that that grief process starts again um, that lack of uh self-esteem and knowing that they're not going to be successful and so on can stop them from wanting to engage um the parents also play a role in that and that they, if they're feeling like they need to wrap that child up in bubble wrap and keep them protected and safe, they may not be uh, so supportive of the, of the kid going out and playing ball sports or, or running around on a field. They're afraid they're gonna hurt themselves in that sort of uh, situation. So I think it's really important that we keep that in mind when we're working with students because the emotional situation that people we're working with is a, is a very real uh, situation. It's, it's, I think too often we dismiss it um, or, or we trivialize it, and, and I think if we, if we bring it to light and talk about it, we can, we can move forward a lot. Medicalizing the visual impairment resulting in automatic shutdown of possibilities, so as the parents say, well, the, or, or the teachers, or the PE teacher says vision can't be corrected um, to where the person can see the ball, so we don't even need to worry about pl- trying to play it, and that's just not true. A lot of times we can adapt things, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Most PE teachers have not received much, if any, education in the area of adapted PE. Um, some studies Dr. Lieberman has done. So they don't really know, they don't have the underlying philosophies about how to adapt um, sports uh, or, or physical activity for kids with special needs. And of course, there's the fear of liability that's a, that, that constantly comes up. Everyone is afraid of lawsuits. And so it's, it's also like the emotional situation. I, in my experience, it's best just to talk about it, bring it out. Um, sometimes it might even be necessary to have the parents give the permission to say look I understand that that my kid is is going under some additional risk running across the field if they fall and bruise their knee I'm okay with it it's important Uh, and in my experience it takes time for me to talk to those parents and and talk them through that because they may not even realize that they're uh, you know, being overprotective in that way. The research shows that overcoming these barriers is is possible. Many studies have shown that VI uh, visual impairment does not directly cause poor physical skills or fitness. We can look at Paralympic athletes and see that there's lots of uh, appropriate physical development. They're very skilled. It, it's not something that just happens automatically. It takes a lot of supports and a lot of interventions to make those individuals have the needs uh, the prerequisite skills to to move on in the sports. Lack of ability to perceive movement visually can affect typical development however with the proper interventions many of these deficits are able to be overcome. In all things in our profession collaboration is critical. Clear communication of students visual impairment and real limit- limitations rather than their perceived ones. Um, it, it's really important that we communicate that to the staff. They, uh, A lot of the folks that we work with they're going to have, they're bringing to the table all the things that they think they know about blindness or visual impairment. Uh, They're going to lay down all kinds of maybe inappropriate uh, opinions of what your student is able to do. It's really important that we are very clear with what the true abilities of the student is. And the other thing I think is when we're working with PE teachers it's it's important to to have respect for what they're doing in their profession and the fact that they're many times it, it's it's increasingly happening that, that there may only be one PE teacher for the whole school and they're responsible for all of the all the kids they've got all hundreds of kids that they're having to deal with and yours is just one um, and, and I think it's important i verbalize that to these folks like I understand that my kid is one of a hundred that you have to deal with and and I just' I'm, anything that you can do to help us get through this I'm super appreciative of it you know uh, and and just acknowledging that that burden that they're carrying it usually will get folks more on board with you and and, uh, and more respectful. Um, getting people to talk about what's what's passionate for them and what's interesting for them and and or or asking you know how can I how can I help my student learn the skills that you need them to learn. And a lot of times I've had people turn around, it's like inviting them to ask me, well, what can I do to help you out, <laughs> you know? And that works the same way with OTs and PTs or the speech language, like, what are you working on so that I can be sure to reinforce your what the things that you're doing while I'm working with Joey? And, and it's just natural that they go, well, what, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked, you know, I got these these cane techniques or whatever. So, yeah, that team playing is just really important. I always offer assistance with adaptations. I'm there to help, I'm there to uh, help them think about it. It's also just like with the rest of our work though, if we're working with a math teacher or an English teacher, it's important to recognize that we're not the expert in sports and recreation, that that other teacher, that PE teacher, they have the degree in it, they know how all this stuff works. I look at it as my job is to uh, communicate, to translate the needs of of somebody um, who has a visually impaired uh, brain but they are putting their expertise on top of that. And so it, the collaboration is just absolutely critical. Observe the class to scaffold the instruction and model appropriate teaching practices. Scaffolding means that we're supporting it as, as needed and then we're willing to remove those supports as the person is showing us that they're, they're ready for that. Um, and it's difficult. Sometimes it's, it's challenging to remove those scaffolds. It's, a, it's scary, you know, you're afraid the kid's gonna, gonna not be successful, but that's also part of learning. One of the things that's helpful is to talk with the PE teacher in the beginning of the year uh, or even at the end of the year before the next year to find out what are the goals for a kid with with this particular age uh, or what are their goals in that next grade level for that student so that we can start pre-teaching some of those skills. So I've had students that have difficulty with arm circles or those basic warm-up exercises in the morning. They don't have the body concepts to be able to go down and do a push-up. Um, the teacher expects them to sort of be able to look around and see what a push-up looks like and and they're expecting to have some arched back and so on but many of our students don't even have a basic uh, they don't even know how to get on their hands and knees and support their body that way Um, and those are all skills that I can put into play ahead of time and and uh, give that basic body awareness so that when the push-up comes up in class they've got the the basics so that the teacher can do their work a little bit more efficiently one of the things I've heard from a lot of PE teachers um, is they don't, they're not invited to IEPs, they don't, they don't, they don't know much about that process. Um, I think it's important to invite those folks to the IEP, it's important if they can't come to make sure that they're participating either with something that's written, talk about what their goals are, so that, so that everybody at the table is aware that this physical side of the student is as critical as anything else. Too often in our world, the academics overshadow everything and, and really, uh, at, at the end of the day, m- myself as an adult, 80% of what I do is, is you know, social skills, and orientation, mobility, moving around, and physical skills, I, you know, I, I barely ever use algebra. <laughs> so um, it's really important to, to make sure that that person has an equal stake at the table. And, and in my experience, it also helps that PE teacher to want to engage more because they get part of the family, they become part of the team, um, and, and your student becomes an individual to them. So they're, they're really willing to go the extra mile. The neat thing about PE teachers is they tend to be a long-term teacher, a long-range teacher, you know, so so where that classroom teacher is only there for third grade, that PE teacher may be there for third through fifth, you know, and uh, and so if you get that person really on board, it's less work you're going to have to do the next couple years and, and doing it in small bite-sized chunks. I've had some luck. Um, Showing YouTube videos of of adapted sports or something, you know, it's it's these three-minute clips or whatever Uh, Putting them in touch with another PE teacher in the school district that that has already worked with that kid So that they know that you can reach out to, you know, uh, Miss Arasi at uh, Kate Sullivan or whatever And she's she's worked with this guy for, you know, four years. Maybe she's got some ideas They speak the same language I I try as much as I can to, to make sure that that person is seeing my student as an individual and not the blanket, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of times this rec and leisure stuff is used as the inclusion time. I think the PE time, and and uh, there's a you know forty percent inclusion time or whatever, and they count the the PE time as that time. But but a lot of times. It's not inclusion time to date. Um, every PE teacher I've worked with has been very interested. They've had limited uh, creative ability, <laughs> depending depending on which which person. I've had some that were amazing, and some of them that just they needed to be really kind of told how to how to do it. Um, but they've all, I mean, everybody's in education, for the most part, everybody's in education because they love kids, you know, and they want to be, they want to help. And uh, I think a lot of it is empowering them to make decisions. I, I think al- allowing people to make choices and to tell them, I, that, that's happened a lot with the paraprofessionals I've worked with. They, they were never given permission to make a decision, you know, it was like if they didn't have... If they didn't have Mr. Mickey's rule, they they froze up, and and that involved the kid not participating that day because they didn't have a script to follow. But if I can get that person to understand my overarching philosophy, they usually can make a pretty good decision. You know, when it when when that moment comes up that we just didn't prepare for. Uh, but yeah, humans are script-driven organisms. I mean, we just don't know what to do. And if something happens that we don't have a script for, we tend to just lock up like deer in headlights. Also, critical to keep it fun, it is called wreck and leisure. It's it's supposed to be we're it's supposed to be things that are enjoyable, ways to um, uh, pass the time later in life. I'm a big believer in barefoot stuff too. I, I try to get the shoes off kids' feet. Uh, I, a lot of our students are very tactily defensive and. Um, and there's so much musculature that's in the feet. It's very, it is amazing. A lot of sensation there. I, I've found kids, once I can get them over that, you know, tactile defensiveness of that funny feeling grass or whatever, they, they move through the terrain better uh, when they're barefoot. They, uh, they're picking up finer sensations in the, in the level, the ground changing um, that they can't grab when, they're, when their shoes are on. I, I've also had um, students at the physical therapist's or trying to fix toe walking and so they put AFOs on the kid and it stops the toe walking but it makes it impossible for that student to walk on a ground that's not level mm-hmm. uh, right. and so I, I, I had this debate for a, a whole year with a physical therapist who wanted the AFOs on the on the kid to stop her from toe walking but I was like she can't go on the playground she falls over because she, her ankles can't change anymore mm-hmm. you've just you've locked everything up um, and it just changed everything it was a chain reaction across her body so I I started kind of sneakily taking them off when we were doing the off the sidewalk activities and um, she finally relaxed on it a little bit because it was the afos weren't fixing the toe walking they were just Mm -hmm. preventing it from occurring and Mm -hmm. and um yeah so it was a it's funny how we can kind of be at odds with with different people's goals and and my experience when i was working with some of the physical therapists that they would really dial in on a particular issue and lose sight of the overall kid that we're working with. And that was the case with this student is it's like, she was, well, we're going to fix that toe walking. And I'm like, yeah, but we've broken playgrounding. <laughs> like she, can't, she can't go out there and play with the kids anymore. And that's impacting social skills and all of this other stuff. So we need to remember that there's a child before there's a therapy, or there's a child before there's a disability, that there's a, there's this real person here that if they're not having a good time, they're, they're certainly not going to continue it when you're not around. And, and that's really part of the f- goals of the Rec and Leisure ECC skill area is that they have ways to pass a time in productive and, and fun and therapeutic ways as they, as they age.
1: Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530.
0: So some tips for instruction. Uh, important to keep in mind, we do part to whole learning a lot with children with visual impairment, just like other forms of learning. Um, kids with visual impairment are not likely to grasp the whole before they get the individual parts. They're building it up. Um, over time, so it's important to to task analyze and use all those old skills that we've learned in all the other adaptations we've done, figure it out, break it down, have a good understanding of what your kid is able to work on and do so that you can have appropriate expectations for that next level. I always make sure that the PE teacher is given permission to make sure that that student is part of the whole class, that the same expectations are are in place for him as, as for anyone else um that means he the the kid is expected to dress out if dressing out is what everybody does the student is is, is expected to fully participate or, or whatever um it's been my experience many times when i worked in pe is that they the teacher is is they they don't want to push the kid they don't want to break the kid they're afraid of hurting the kid or whatever and so they're willing to give that child an a and just let them sit on the sidelines uh and i think Part of that is that we just have to give that permission to, and, and get them on board with that philosophy. Um, had somebody ask me, you know, what are some strategies for that to get that teacher on board with your philosophies? And, and I usually start by trying to figure out what makes that PE teacher want to do what they're doing and why do they teach PE? Why do they think it's valuable? Uh, and then that allows me to, to figure out what their switches are that get them excited about their work and then figure out ways I can tie that in with my students. So. Um, It's kind of a sales process a little bit make the environment auditorily meaningful to the student Um, Eliminate confusing or conflicting sounds that can be really really challenging when you're working in a gymnasium Um, PEs can be really you know P classes or just mayhem kids with sensory processing uh, Disorder can be really just overwhelmed in there And so it may be that part of your scaffolding process is starting from the outside and working in slowly as the comfort level builds and they have they have a, a ways to process all that extra stimuli or if you can reduce it down a bit or or work in smaller groups or if you're working on a team sport maybe you can separate off three or four kids away from the bigger mass and and you can uh, work that way. So just, just keeping in mind that all that stimuli is just more stuff for their brain to process and it's just harder to think. I try to orient the student to the space before the class is there um you know i I walk the volleyball court or go walk the baseball diamond kind of give an idea of how all this works before all the kids are running around and everything's so crazy and dynamic so that when they get out there they have some basic understanding of what's going on it's not totally uh, they're not walking out there cold and this really matters to me when the kids are older when they they're emotionally fragile, like these sixth, to seventh, and eighth graders. They, <laughs> they, get out there and they're just really not happy. <laughs> they just too un- unusual and too strange, and they just don't even want to participate. Narrate the environment as it's happening uh, when introducing new activities or trying to explain what's going on around this, the the student. Keeping in mind that if they don't uh, they don't have experience with those activities, narration may not be helpful without in-depth uh, instruction. So, so I'm thinking like badminton or something. If they don't know what a shuttlecock is, when what good is it going to do to say that the kids bat in the shuttlecock around? What is that to that person and some some strange rooster or something, you know? So um, it's important to have those prerequisite uh, skills again if they before you narrate. Avoiding overprotection, that's huge. Everybody wants to protect. Everybody wants to wrap our kids in bubble wrap and keep them from hurting themselves. So we need to communicate with the families and and talk about how we're going to communicate to the schools that that overprotection is not something that that we really want. It's actually long term, it's damaging to, to the kid. And a lot of it comes down to why are we here? We're looking at this future adult. Where is this guy going one day? We want this we want this girl to, to, to be able to be fully functional, fully capable as a, as a grown woman. Um, too often in education, we, we get very myopic. We focus just on these third grade skills or these fourth grade skills, and I think we lose sight of the fact that we're, this is a long-range kind of game. This, this person's going and growing somewhere, and, and we need to be on board with that. Um, When people accept that philosophy, it's much easier for them to make good choices when they're making an intervention because they're going, wow, okay, I need to be moving this person forward. So I teach the staff and the instructors how to encourage independence. That also comes with every kid is different. I have some kids that are very resistant to doing new activities. I will tell the staff or the teachers that work with that kid, like, this is This is a this is a way to handle uh, Will. This is um, this is stuff that he will do. He'll fight back this way, but he doesn't really mean it. You know, you got to keep pushing him through or whatever. Um, Because a lot of times these kids get really good at at learning how to get out of uh, doing stuff, and they don't want to do it. Um, But. You know, some of my students, if you if you let them make every choice in their life, they would organize their CDs for the rest of their life. That's all they want to do. And and uh, a lot of times we, we just have to kind of encourage them past that and it takes, takes patience. Little things can hang us up in PE like uh, access to be able to use the locks and the lockers, a uh, combination lock or a key lock. Um, these little skills can, can hang a student up, slow them down, if we're expecting them to dress out but it takes them five minutes to open up their padlock on their locker, well, we we'll, gotta figure out something there because they're gonna be late to class every day. Uh, many of our kids, at least the ones I've worked with, they have difficulties with dressing or putting their shirt on or taking their shirt on and off or or they take their jacket off and it's all the sleeves are pulled inside out and so when they have to dress back later, now they're taking additional time to get the jacket reoriented so a lot of those weird skills that uh, from the rest of the kid's life that play a role and will slow us down in pe we want to take the time to orient the student to whatever equipment that we're working with i've, I've had kids that uh, just just to give them the experience of it i've actually picked them up and had them just hand walk around the goal post at the end of the football field, just to get the idea that this this what this thing is down here at the end, even if they're not interacting with that goal post. It's just part of the environment, um, that language is thrown around, things like goal post is mentioned, it's important for them to know what that is. So basic principles of adaptation, so there's some considerations with this, we want to we want to have a good understanding of the functional abilities, so I think I think just like when we do a functional vision assessment and our students understand what their their functional vision is like, I think it's a good idea to have a nice understanding of what their physical abilities are like. So you should really know, you know, are, are they weaker on their left side, do they have um, hand strength issues. Like These are all things we should have a good understanding of and we should be able to communicate that to the PE teacher so that we're properly... Uh, supporting our students. Just like when we adapt materials in the classroom, if you're a teacher of the visually impaired, if we adapt these materials in the class, we, the first thing we do when we look at an assignment is, what is the point of this assignment? What is the objective? Um, sometimes it's just busy work, <laughs> you know? But usually there's something that's really important that that teacher is wanting them to get out of that. Uh, same thing in sports or recreation. Like, what, what are, are we working on? Balance right now? Are we, are we working on um, hand-eye coordination? What, what is, it? Is, it, is it? Social skills? Um, and find out what that main objective is, so that you can make sure you preserve the integrity of, of, of the activity, even if you're making some modifications so that your student can participate. And then, of course, keeping in mind uh, that we should put some relevant IEP goals or objectives to support all of this stuff. Um, it's often that I, I don't see uh, Rec and Leisure goals on IEPs. Rec and Leisure is kind of put to the back burner of the student's needs academically, and, and um, I think we need to make sure that when we're doing these kinds of supports which most of us do as teachers that we should have that reflected on the IEP so that so that it's it's noted that that it's a value and it's important. I always in all of my work with students I always include them in in my decision making when it comes to adaptations or or in their goals. I even even little kids five six years old if i can we talk about like what what would help you what do you think would make this easier for you you're not getting out of this activity but what would you what what would make it easier for you you know is there is there something we can do and work together and when they're young puppies like those five and six years old kids they they don't make very good uh, they don't know how to answer those questions but it's just from early on, from very early on, I'm teaching them that you are important, you are responsible, your voice matters when it comes to your body and, and what's going on. And, and all these things pay off later on. It pays off maybe in areas of, of even just consent, you know, and, and knowing that they have value in that self-determination and, and that, that their words matter. Uh, and it is their body, so they should have some should have some buy-in into how that's being used. Avoid overdoing adaptations, uh, making the least amount of um, interventions necessary for success. It's very often I know we all deal with this that, the the staff the typical um educators are looking at your student visual impairment and they just want to pull out the whole drawer of adaptations they want to dump all the accommodations on them and it's it comes down to them not keeping in mind that this is going to be a future adult one day um and it's just so important to remember that because we're working in schools uh and and it's a very sanitized environment for for kids it's very careful and protective and the real world just isn't that way i mean they get out there and And uh, and it's, as they say, a dog-eat-dog world. And and people that need lots of adaptations and modifications, those folks don't get jobs, they don't get married, they don't have families, they don't get to participate in a a complete way if all those modifications or adaptations are necessary for functioning. Because the world just isn't that way. So we just need to keep in mind, what's our long-range plan? It it really helps with making decisions as we move along. Creativity is something that that, uh, we, are increasingly having limited time to do. It seems like with more more uh, pressures being put on us to make um, all these academic modifications and stuff. But but it just it does come down to being creative. It's a philosophy. We me I you know you, you get successful somewhere with this adaptation and and it, I think you have a tendency to continue keeping it in place after the kid may have outgrown it and we can pull that down a little bit and sure you're going to, whenever you remove an adaptation the skill's going to fall a little bit and that should be expected that's going to happen the kid may not like it uh... they may not be as, as, as capable as they were before but but they'll build back up again one of the things that, that I like to do is is give my students body problems to solve uh, uh, you know I. I deliberately present them with with opportunities to have to think it out to figure out what am I going to do here so I come up against a a fence you know like those uh, wooden slat fences and and rather than walk to the opening in the fence why can't we climb through the fence or why can't we climb over the fence or can we climb under the fence and and how to do that or or um Getting to a pull-up bar, you go to many playgrounds. You'll see kids sitting on top of the pull-up bars and they're hanging from it by their feet or their knees or whatever. Well, how do they get up there? They have to. They have to solve these body problems to figure out how to manipulate their body up there. And most adults couldn't get on top of those bars anymore. They've forgotten how to solve those problems themselves. Um, but I'll, I'll put the kid at the bar and I we can sit up here together and I climb up there with them uh, and, and support them while they're up there and I've hung upside down with the kid by my knees and they're by their knees and we'll sit there and chat and and I know some people are just not physically capable of doing that so I, you know, I understand that but, but supporting that kid and modeling that behavior is really important too. So often as grownups we we insist that the students do things that we ourselves aren't going to do so I think it's important as much as possible to participate in the activities we're asking the kids to participate in you know you can adapt rules too you can allow double bounces of balls you can change distances involved in games or activities Um, some of our kids it's not vision that's the issue so much it could be cardiovascular health or or uh, um, you know just easily fatigued and so making the distance that they have to run less is is going to help them want to participate more Um, Allowing a player to play only offense or defense. That can be really helpful if it's something like a risk of retinal detachment and you don't want the ball coming at them. You know They can throw it, but you don't want it coming at them. Requiring all team members to have contact with the ball before a score can be made. That's uh, one that can be kind of fun. It can also be frustrating for people, um, but it's good for the other kids. It's good for the other students that are typically developing to understand those team activities and, and how, to, how to participate with everybody. Uh, using a batting tee, or having everyone simulate the disability, um, such as using blindfolds or low vision simulators, on some or each of the team members. I'm careful when I use simulators, and then I want to make sure that the that the that it's not a situation that's going to make the the people wearing the simulators feel bad for your student. Like, I don't want them to be scared or nervous or feel like failures because they then they assume that your kid's going to be doing that all the time, and, and it, it seems to be counterproductive. So so when you use the simulators, just teach about it a little bit. Talk about it. Um, make it more of a fun thing. There's also uh, playing some sports that are made for people that are visually impaired, like goalball. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. There's nothing wrong with having a a fully typically sighted class put on blindfolds and playing goalball. That's really fun. You know, it's a fun sport. Our field is not very old, formally not very old. I mean, blind people have been moving since they were blind people, but but uh, formally as a profession, it's not all that old. And, and really, the people that originally started this stuff, they, they were way less educated than we are. <laughs> and, and they kind of just made it up. They were empowered to make it up. They had a problem to solve. They solved the problem. There's nothing to say that that next parent or that next student or whatever isn't going to come up with the next awesome, amazing, game-changing thing. Uh, and, and I think people just need to have permission to think and permission to be creative with it.
1: This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.